wasn't my intention. This wasn't my plan. I didn't come looking for God. He came after me like an apex predator, and it's like I didn't even have a choice, all right? Never in my wildest dreams did I think, I mean, just this overeducated redneck from Dillon, South Carolina, that I would be stepping into the baptismal waters as the lead pastor of a church baptizing people because I am totally unqualified to get in these waters and proclaim anything about Jesus just like you're unqualified to get in, but it's by His grace and His mercy that He calls us into that. And my hope and prayer over this entire series is that God would wreck your life in the best possible way. And so we're going to look at the next three or four weeks um, of these particular men and their stories and how their life was totally interrupted by the gospel. So we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. It starts out with, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Um, if you'll remember, if you've been here in the past couple of weeks, there was persecution in the first church. And so the early Christians didn't, didn't just decide, you know, we're kind of tired of living in Jerusalem. You know, there's all this beach and, and no ocean. So let's go move somewhere else. And so that's not how it went. But they were being persecuted. That religious terrorists were trying to kill them because they believed in Jesus. And so when Saul and these other Pharisees and Sadducees began to persecute the church, they began to spread out all over the place. And one of the reasons that Christianity spread so fast and so far in the first century is because every Christian preached the gospel everywhere, which was unique among Christianity. You see, in most religions, um, the proclamation of whatever they teach is really just relegated to the priest or the religious people, you know, the people with the robes and the hats and the wands. But in Christianity, it was every Christian everywhere, just whoever you were. Regardless of how long you had followed Jesus, whether you'd been a Christian for a long time or you just got saved, um, if you were highly educated or you were uneducated, it really didn't matter that you were to share your story and how the gospel interrupted your life with whoever God put in your path wherever you were. So that was what's going on here. So verse 5, Philip. So Philip is one of these disciples that's on the run for his life. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them, the Christ. Now, when you hear Samaria, you actually think something good because you've heard of the Good Samaritan. In the first century, when the first century uh, church, particularly in Jerusalem, when they heard Samaria, they went, what? Why would you go to Samaria? I mean, there was this intense uh, racial prejudice against the Samaritans. There was a theological prejudice against the Samaritans. Those group of people did not get along at all. The closest thing that I can think of in, in our context would be if I told my, the Bulldog Nation, hey, listen, folks, I'm going to Gainesville, and they'd go, what? What is wrong? Were you lost? Is there a problem? It would be that kind of angst, all right? So that's what's sort of going on here. Philip goes to Samaria, and he begins to preach the gospel, verse 6, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And let me just point one thing out. Philip had nothing in common with the Samaritans. Did you know that, um, that God uses all different kind of people to reach all different kind of people? And God may have placed you in your office, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your class, to reach somebody who is not like you whatsoever. And thank goodness and praise God that it's not the vessel that saves but it's God himself that saves. So God could use any of you to save anybody that he wants to save. And that God, God is not confined by the, by the uh, cultural context of our day. But he just knocks those things down. And he's using this Jewish kid, Philip, to share the gospel in a place um, 
where there was a, where there was a lot of angst among those groups, and God just saved them anyway. And then verse eight says this: so there was much joy in that city. You see, because Philip didn't just show up and just preach the gospel, but Philip also showed up and he met some of the needs of the people in this city. I mean, the lame were walking and the paralyzed were healed and the blind could see. You see, when the church does what the church is supposed to do, when the church is who the church is supposed to be, then the entire city is blessed. Not just, not just that church, but the entire city is blessed, regardless of what the city believes. And listen, Church of 1122, that's the kind of church we want to be in our beloved city of Jacksonville. We love this city, and we are here for this city. And so, yes, the gospel will be preached, and yes, men and women will surrender their lives to the Lordship of Christ, but we're not just about our little kingdom here in the, in the old Walmart growing, and it's not just about we've got a lot of people in here, and we've got a lot of people in our new gen space, and we've got to move to more services. That's not what it's all about. It's about us being so transformed, our lives being so interrupted by the gospel, that then we act like it. And we move out from here, and yes, the lame will walk and the blind will see, but also SAT scores should improve, and graduation rates should get better, and there should be less hungry people, and addiction should be on the decline. I mean, this should be the kind of place where our city looks at us, and I mean, I mean the higher-ups in this city, that they would say, man, since that church opened its doors, then the community around them, there are less kids um, who, who can't get their homework done because that church is moving out in mass to mentor and tutor kids who don't have a mom and dad that are, are, are able to help them. And that the entire city is filled with joy. I, I want us to be the kind of church where, where people look at our church and say, you know what, I don't even think I believe what they believe, but I sure am glad they're here. Right? I want people looking at our church going, hmm, I know Jesus the only way. That's kind of, I don't know about that. But I sure do want to hire those people. I sure do want those people dating my daughter. I sure do want those people walking around our school. I want those people because the kind of the byproduct of the gospel is the entire city is lifted. And the entire time we do it, not just so SAT stores in our area can get better, but it's so that Jesus can get all the glory for that. And that's the kind of church we're going to be. And that's what was going on right here in the sputtering clause. That's great. At some point, we all will get in a bus. Okay? This is just one-off. This doesn't count against my sermon time. We're all going to get in a bus. And we're going to go to Bishop Vaughn McLaughlin's church. All right? You know him, the Potter's House over on the west side? And we, I'm going to teach you all how to receive a sermon. All right? Because when he gets fired up, his people get up and they go, glory. And they get, it, it's, it's better than y'all. All right, here we go. But I love you. I love you. But we, we're still young. We'll get there. All right, here we go. All right, we're back in. Back in the game. Okay, time in. Here we go. Verse 9. But. There was a man named Simon. So the rest of the time we're going to talk about this, this guy named Simon. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. In other words, he was kind of a big deal. So when Simon would introduce himself to people, he'd be like, I don't know if you know this, but I'm kind of a big deal. All right? That's how Simon was. And, and when it says that he practiced magic, this wasn't like um, children's birthday magic, right? He didn't, he didn't show up and pull a rabbit out of a hat or take a bunch of scarves and be like, oh, look at that, right? Not, it, that's not what he's doing. This was like the occult. This was black magic. This was voodoo, worship the devil kind of magic. This is an evil, evil, evil man. 
And so when, uh, when, when Philip shows up, and here's this guy, Simon, it's kind of a big deal, verse 10. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man, talking about Simon, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Philip, proclaiming the gospel, the word of God does what the word of God does, and it's capturing men and women's hearts, and people are surrendering their life to the lordship of Christ. And then you get verse 13, even Simon. And now, again, I know you don't know Simon that well, but when, when you read this in the first century and it says, even Simon, you'd go, nuh-uh, not Simon. Simon won the award in high school, least likely to be a Christian, okay? That's who Simon was. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Simon would have been the person least likely to be a believer and a follower. If you would have known Simon, you would have thought, oh my goodness, I cannot believe he is a believer. Much like some of, that happens to you today sometimes, doesn't it? You, you walk in the hall and you see a guy that you partied with and you're like, what are you doing here? And they look at you and go, I was thinking the same thing. That's kind of the story of who we are. And if you're a Simon, if you, if you kind of qualify as least likely to be a follower of Jesus, then, then you are in the right place, okay? That's what this church is full of, a full of a bunch of people that people went, really? It's like when, when my high school friends kind of discover on Facebook what we're into, what's going on here, they're like, is this the same Joby Martin, okay? It's that kind of, it's got that kind of thing. Which, by the way, let me just, um, let me just encourage you a little bit. There is no one beyond the reach of an almighty God. And so some of you gave up praying for somebody, um, your ex-wife, your ex-husband, your current wife, your current husband, a prodigal son, a prodigal daughter, your boss, somebody that works for you, your old roommate. You quit praying for them because you kind of thought, you know what, I know God can save most people, but not that one. They are out of his reach, and that is not, that, that couldn't be further from the truth, okay? That... That God, well, my favorite way that the Bible says it is in Isaiah 59.1. Isaiah says that the, arm, that the arms of the Lord are not too short to save. The arms of the Lord are not too short to save. I want you to get this imagery because some of you believe in a T-Rex God. I've talked to you about it before. But you believe in the, the T-Rex God. Big old head, big old teeth, quick to bite, but can't quite reach the people. Ah, you know, he's like that. That's not the God of the Bible. His arms are not too short to reach out and save. And so this week, church, I want us to focus on praying for least likely to become a Christian. That person that God has you in their life, and you think, I don't know, it would be miraculous. And do not give up on a God that did not give up on you. Because he didn't give up on me. And if he can save me, he can save anybody. And then let's pray for that church over the next bunch of weeks. God will be glorified, and he'll just show up and show out because all of these folks that were far from God would come to the place where they surrender their life to him. I want us to be especially focused on the people farthest from God. And some of you, some of you right now, you brought your roommate, and you're going, she's sitting right here, all right? Listen, if you think you're too far from God, then, then you don't know him yet. His arms are not too short to save. He does not want to just bite your head off. He wants to reach out 
with his everlasting and ever-loving arms. They are, they are outstretched to you, and they stretched out on a cross to purchase you for him. And so even Simon, and if you'll, if you'll notice, Simon was on a bit of this progression. Did you notice that? At the beginning of the text, he's just showing up to see. I mean, if, I, if there's a guy casting out demons, I'm going to show up and, and, and see what that's all about. That'd be cool. And they said they came out with a loud scream. I mean, who isn't going to go check that out? I've never cast out a demon in my life, right? I've, uh, you know, sent a seventh grader home from camp. That's about as close as I've ever come. But, but that was kind of cool, too. Then I met his mom and dad, and I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So, uh, but it was just kind of a come and see at first, and then, and then after he's, he's coming and seeing, and then he starts believing. It, the Bible says that he believes. He said, oh, what Philip's saying is making sense. Some of you have been on this journey. If it doesn't make sense in your head, you're like, well, I think what he's saying is the truth. I mean, I don't know if I buy it all, but, man, I, I think I believe in Jesus. And then from there, he follows. It says that he follows, and he follows in this obedient step of baptism. That he proclaims to the world that Jesus is his Lord and that he gets dumped. And so that's where Simon is. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Now, Peter and John, they're kind of, they really are a big deal. They are the big guns of the early church. This is like president and CEO of Jesus International, all right? And, and they're hearing, hey, the word is reaching Samaria. Probably somebody updated their Facebook and word got to Peter and John, and they said, we've got to go down there and see if this is legit. So they all, Peter and John show up, verse 15, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, that's the Holy Spirit, and this is just for free, okay? The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is he, the third person of the Trinity. So, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Let me explain what that means real quick. Because the language there is very, very important. Notice that it does not use the language baptized in the Holy Spirit as if there's different baptisms. So, here's, here's what it says. If you'll remember in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit um, fell on or baptized the entire church. Any person that put their faith in Jesus Christ, surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Dip, dunk, submerge, or wash. That's what baptism means. That's why, by the way, at Church of 1122, when we baptize you, there ain't no sprinkling here, all right? We baptizo. That's the Greek word. Dip, dunk, submerge, or wash. And like Pastor Ben said, if you're a real sinner, we kind of, you know, put you in the, in the rinse cycle and get it all out. And we bring you up for resurrection to a new life, okay? Dip, dunk, submerge, or watch. That's just what it means. And so, when you become a Christian, if you have surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, then the Bible says that a deposit of the Holy Spirit has been placed into you. That's what the Bible means when it says your body is a temple of God. That doesn't mean it matters what you look like in your bikini. Can I get an amen? That's a real high-pitched amen. You notice that? So what that means is God lives in you now. That, that people used to think that God lived in this building, and they called that building where he lived, the temple. Well, God's new temple, his new dwelling place, is in the Christian, in the person that surrendered their life to the Lordship of Christ. And so that deposit has been made. So if you're a Christian, you have all of the Holy Spirit that you need. You don't need any more Holy Spirit. That deposit has been made in you. 
The question is, does he have all of you? And so from this point forward in the book of Acts, you will see language like, uh, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, or they received the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that they didn't have the Holy Spirit before. It just means that he didn't have all of them. It's kind of like when you invite a guest over to your house and you only clean up the parts that they're going to see, but you shut the doors of the dirty rooms. Uh, God's saying, no, I don't, I don't, that's not how I roll, okay? You are going to invite me into all of you. And so he's in all of you, but have you fully submersed, surrendered, and say, all right, God, here I am. And so in this place, when they receive, what you'll see here is when they receive the Holy Spirit, nobody spoke in tongues, even though at the Church of 1122, um, we are for the full expression of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but every believer receives the Holy Spirit at conversion, at that moment when they trust Jesus as their Savior. But for us to um, give all of ourselves to all of who He is in us, it's more of a process, a lifetime journey of what the theologians will call progressive sanctification. And that's what we're seeing right here in Simon. Verse 18. Now, Simon. Now, when Simon saw the Holy Spirit was given through the laying only of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. All right, now we got a real problem here. At this point in the text... Um, it's really not clear whether Simon is actually a Christian or not. And theologians and first century historians kind of argue and debate over whether Simon actually surrendered his life to Christ or not. Some will say, well, obviously he didn't because he's trying to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. And who would do that? Obviously he has not surrendered his life to Christ. And then others will say, well, we think maybe he has but um, he's just kind of fallen, or he's just in sin right now, and he, it's like all of us have an opportunity for repentance. And so, um, it, it really, if you look at the text, it's a, little, it's a little hard to tell. But you know what Simon sees? See, Simon was a magician, remember, and he sees the apostles, and they lay their hands on these new believers, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And Simon says, man, I want some of that power. I, I mean, I'm a magician, just like you're a magician, and I, that's a cool trick, and I would like the trick. I mean, blind seeing and lame walk is cool, but if I could have the power of the Spirit in my hand and I could give the Holy Spirit to people, how much does that cost? Because I want to sign up for that. And, and let me just warn you, it's, it's a lot like the prosperity gospel being preached today. It's a lot like the prosperity gospel. See, here's what he says. He says, give me this power also so that anyone who I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, I want to put God in my head. How about I sow some money or I sow some seed into that ministry and then God will owe me. And, and listen, evangelical church, which we are, if we're not careful, we can slip into that kind of mentality very, very easily. As if, as if you're going to buy God off and he's going to owe you something. If you ever make those kind of deals with God? All right, God, I'll go to church. I'll attend regularly. I'll even give a little. I'll serve. I'll even go on one of those mission trips so the pastor will quit beating me up every year about that. I'll do those things for you, but then you owe me. You owe me health, especially for my family. You owe me wealth. You've got to get all my bills paid. I mean, I, I put something in the box. Don't you owe me something back? You owe me happiness. And if God, you don't come through for me, then you're letting down your end of the bargain. And if you play that game, and it's just evidence, like maybe evidence here for Simon, that you have not fully surrendered to him. Because what you're saying, in essence, is, no, I'm Lord, and you serve me. And you're saying, I'm going to follow you so that. I'm going to follow
follow you so that I have a better life. I'm going to follow you so that my kids grow up the way I want them to grow up. I'm going to follow you so that my business will be blessed. And that is just a Christian form of idolatry. When we take anything temporary and we try to worship it as ultimate, when we try to use God so that that is not surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. You see, we surrender to Him because He is preeminent. We surrender to Him because He is worthy. Because the gospel is not you follow Jesus and you get cash prizes. The gospel is you follow Jesus and you get Jesus. And sometimes it goes well and sometimes it goes very, very poorly. But eternally He wins. He wins. And He is more than enough. And so Simon is, in that area of his life at least, is not surrendered. Verse 20, but Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Like I said, this is, this is why the historians kind of argue about whether Simon's a Christian or not. So, man, I read commentary after commentary, and much like you this weekend, I read first century historian after first century historian. I mean, don't we all? And so, uh, you know what, as I was kind of peeling through that and, and peeling through the text and just trying to figure out if Simon's going to be in heaven or not, um, you know what, I just, I just had this kind of, kind of scary realization as the pastor of such a fast-growing church. Because you know, um, I can't tell if you're surrendered, if you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ. Because you could be on the same journey Simon's on. You could show up to this church because you just want to see what the heck's going on. I mean, you used to drive by here and the parking lot was empty, and now it's full of cars. And you say, what's going on? And maybe you've seen the bumper sticker, and you finally realize it's not a surf company, it's a church. And so you actually show up, and you kind of show up in the back row just to sort of come and see. And you think, this is church? I've been to church. I grew up Catholic. What's with the Coldplay band? I don't understand what's going on. But then it just kind of starts, the Lord starts wooing you, and you don't realize it. You don't even believe everything we're talking about, but you have to come back. And, and before you know it, it, it begins to click up here, and you start going, you know what? I think I do believe. I think I actually believe. You know, I believe in God. And I, I believe God came in as Jesus' son and died on a cross for my sin. And maybe you've even stepped from that place to, to the place of being a follower. Where you raised your hand and said, hey, I, I want to become a Christian. Follow him. And you've, and you've done all those things. And you've filled out the forms. And you've gone to the Connect Center. And maybe you've even been baptized. And you could do all of those things and still have not surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ. And as a pastor, it's a scary place. One, I'm scared for you. I really am. And, and let me tell you, Christians, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, um, I'm not trying to get you to question your salvation. Okay? Because He purchased you. You didn't earn what has already been purchased. But what I am trying to do is church people. I want you to understand that salvation doesn't rest in what you've done, but it rests in what Christ has done for you. And the question is, have you surrendered? Not if you raise your hand or pray to prayer or been baptized or go to church a lot. But do you know him and does he know you? I mean, this is a relationship. And so the scary thing about Simon is up to this point from the outside, it looks like everything is on the up and up, but there's some problems going on. And so, here's what Peter tells in verse 22. Repent. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven of you. I mean, how do you like that little phrase in there, if possible? 
Imagine if you're Simon. We mean impossible. I think Saul, the religious terrorist, is going to get saved next chapter. And it's maybe not possible for me. I think Peter's just trying to turn the wrench on him a little bit. So let, let me tell you, it's possible. All things are possible with God. Again, his arms are not too short. No matter what you've done, no matter the condition of your heart right now, it is possible. And that is the point of the cross. Verse 23, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. You see, Simon had gone through all of the steps. He'd done everything that had been asked of him. And now he has this opportunity for daily repentance and total surrender. And look, folks, that's what being a Christian is all about. It's about daily repentance and, and total surrender. If you're a Christian, listen, repentance isn't just a one-time event that happened at the moment of your conversion. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he says when Jesus spoke of repentance, he hoped that the mark of the Christian would be daily repentance. That every day we turn from the things of this world and we turn to Him as our Lord and our Savior and that we totally surrender to Him as Lord. If He's not Lord of all, then He's not Lord at all. And then the text ends by saying, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. You see, here's the point, here's the bottom line, that Jesus did not come as a teacher merely to be obeyed, or even as a leader to be followed. Now see, that's new news in the southeast. That Jesus didn't come just as a teacher to be obeyed. In other words, everything Jesus thought was true, but the point was not that you would just um, apply all his principles to your life and become a better version of you. And it's also, Jesus did not come, it was not his point to show up just to be a leader to be followed, so you would be more like him. You know, you could, you could pop on your, what would Jesus do, bracelet, and just try to be nicer. You know what Jesus would do? He would go to the cross and endure the full wrath of a sovereign, almighty God for the sake of sinners like you and me that we could be saved. That's what he would do. Right? This doesn't mean you'd be nicer to your boss. You'd be the substitutionary atoning death so that we could have life. That he came as Lord and Savior to be surrendered to. And, and the thing about salvation, the Bible talks about salvation as past, present, and future. The Bible talks about you have been saved by what Christ did on the cross. The Bible talks about being saved when you surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ. And the Bible talks about this ongoing work out your salvation with fear and trembling as God um, continues to chisel away things in your life that don't look like your son Jesus. The theologians call that progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. That means progressively, day by day, little bit by little bit, step by step, you and I by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, become more and more like Him for His glory. And just like we see in Simon, and just like we see in this very room, there are people at all different stages of that walk with Him. Some of you are far from Him, and you just came here today to just come and see. Maybe, maybe you're a lot like Simon, and you're kind of a big deal. I mean, you walk into your office, your school, your family, and people kind of step up and go, man, he's kind of a big deal. And even though everybody else thinks you're kind of a big deal, you know when you lay your head down at night. This ain't it. I hope there's more to this life than, than kind of being a big deal here. And so somebody said, well, why don't you go to church? And you think, church? I haven't been there since I was 12, but I'll try it again. And you show up here and something different's happening. 
He's drawing you to him. He's drawing you to him. So you begin to move from that come and see, just like Simon, to, to believe. You start believing the things that you're hearing. And they begin to work out on your head a little bit. You don't have it all figured out, but you, you're beginning to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is who he said he was. And some of you begin to move into that, that following, where you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, that you really do get on track to try to be more like him for his glory, that you find yourself talking to him and, and engaging in this actual relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's the place where you find yourself fall and then get up again, repent, and you're moving into total surrender. Here's what I need you to hear. That, um, because I hear this kind of terminology often. I hear people talking about, I'm not a very good Christian. There's no such thing as a good Christian. There, there, there's, you used to be dead and now you're alive. And you have a Father in heaven that delights over you at whatever part of the journey that you're on. If this is your very first time in church or your first time back in a long time and you just showed up just to check things out, God is pleased with you and he's drawing you unto himself and he's cheering you on going, way to go, baby. You had to set an alarm to get up at 10.30 and be here. Come on, check it out. The place didn't cave in. It's not even storming outside. See, I told you it would be a safe place to hear a dangerous message. And then some of you are beginning to believe, and he's cheering you on, going, come on, one more step. And some of you today are going to surrender your life, and the Bible literally says angels are party in heaven over that one, okay? And some of you are becoming a little more like him. You're repenting a little every day. And see, so many of you, you feel this guilt, you feel this condemnation, it's not from God. I, I, I really have a verse on this one. That I don't think you can disappoint God, because disappointment... Disappointment means um, that you didn't know what you were getting into. You were a little surprised. Disappointment's about unmet expectations. Do you realize that when God made this deal with you, that he would die on the cross and give you his righteousness, he knew exactly what he was getting into, and he purchased you anyway. So I don't think you can disappoint him. He's a good dad that wants you to grow into maturity. I'll explain it this way. JP is seven years old, and he's... Uh, He's on a flag football team, all right? And he played two years ago. We, we showed up to practice in the first game, and he was terrible. And I thought, what's wrong with the boy, all right? Let's get that from his mama's side. That ain't Martin's blood out there. Well, it was on me, really. Uh, he was five, and I hit the wrong button online on the sign-ups, and I had him in the eight-year-old league. There's a big difference between eight and five. Okay, so we've got it all worked out this year. We got him in the right league. And so we had his first game last Saturday. And we show up for the first game. And um, we, we scored a touchdown, actually we scored a bunch. And uh, after we scored a touchdown, we go for two on my team. Because, you know, you can, from about, I don't know, 10 yards out, you can go for one. You can back up to about 20 and go for two. And we dominate, so we go for two on my team. And so we hand JP the ball, and uh, he's a running back, and he runs through there, and he jukes the guy, and he jumps into the end zone. And the, the referee put the hands in the air for the two-point conversion. And then he is so stoked, because remember, the last time he played, he didn't ever get to run the ball. And so this time, he's the running back, and he scores, and he comes running over to the sideline. I mean, just he's still got the ball in his hand. Ain't nobody taking that ball. It might get mounted on the mantle. You don't know, okay? He is so excited at seven. And how do you think I responded? When he came over and said, Daddy, I scored a touchdown. Did you see it? You think I went, no, 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 it was a two-point conversion. It wasn't, it wasn't a touchdown. It was just a two-point conversion. So don't get super excited, okay? And it's not even real football. It's flag football. You understand? I don't know why they make you wear a mouthpiece, all right? Because we got a bunch of sissies in this world. But 
I don't know what that's all about, but this isn't real fun. Come and talk to me when you put the pads on and, and, and the body starts slinging and the blood starts flying. Now that's real football and that's when touchdowns count. Come and talk to me when you score a varsity touchdown, all right? Or come and talk to me when you play big-time SEC football in, in a conference that matters, okay? Come and talk to me then. Or maybe come and talk to me if you get drafted in the first round. But until then, I don't want to hear it. Do you think that's how I respond? Now, that's how a lot of the parents act out there, but not me. What do you think we did? JP comes running over there with his little two-point conversion, and we go, JP, do you know what just happened? Oh, my goodness, get ready. I think Herb Street and Sports Center will be here any minute. Let me tweet top ten plays of the week. Hashtag awesome, okay? That was amazing. I mean, I saw the way you juke that one guy, and I think I saw Ray Lewis come by and you said, and then ran on in. Come on, man, how did you do that? I mean, we just go, I mean, we just, we celebrate that. Like he just scored a touchdown in the national championship game, which if he's played Notre Dame, he probably could have. But still, that's what we do. Why? Because that's my son. And we delight in him when he does something like that. And you have a heavenly father that delights in you, that celebrates anytime you take some little step, that delights in you when you make that step towards him. Or like when Raiden brings a piece of art home, and you look at it, and you think, well, this should get this checked out. But, but for her, you just celebrate it. Baby, that is beautiful. You made this all by yourself. And you know what that's like. You celebrate that. Regardless of the quality of the art. A few years ago before I had kids, we had a... Um, that's when we were at Beach, a lady named Diane. Her kid was like in kindergarten, first grade, or probably kindergarten. And in her office, she had this thing. And I was like, what is that? This is this kind of brown thing with two circles around it. And she was like, that's a butterfly. Isn't that a butterfly? It's like a poop through wings. What is it? And I would make so much fun of her, and she kept it up there because her daughter made it. Well, then a few years later, when I had kids, guess what I had? Posted right up in my office, a flying poo, just like her, right there. There it was. JP brought him home a butterfly. And I was like, man, that's a beautiful butterfly. Reagan, that's a beautiful butterfly. And Diane comes by laughing at me going, see, I told you they all draw it. I'm like, no, no, no. What your kids drew was a mess. That's art. That is art. Why? Because that's my daughter. And if you showed up here today, and that's all you did, you just showed up. We have a Heavenly Father that delights in that and wants to draw you unto Himself. If you take a step to follow Him, to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ today, if the Bible says heaven rejoices and parties over just one, just one, if you, if you stumble and you fall, but you get up and you repent, you've got a Father in heaven that rejoices over that. But just like any good dad, he wants to discipline you to maturity. So if you're a Christian and you, you have fallen down right now and you're in a ditch and your knees are all scraped up, God is not there to condemn you. He died for you. And he would come and help you up and dust you off and get you pointed in the right direction and celebrate your steps. And if you keep falling down in the same place, you'll go, you know what, you don't need to walk here anymore. Let me lovingly discipline you so you don't walk in those ways anymore. Folks, God is not in love with some future version of you once you get it all together. He wants you to come home right now because he loves you.
that's what it means to be wrecked. I mean to be wrecked in the best possible way. Would you please bow your head? Maybe this morning you're at the place in your journey where you know that God is drawing you unto himself. And this morning, for the very first time, you want to cross over that line from death to life. And you want to respond by God's invitation to be forgiven of your sins, not to do better, not to be better, but to be forgiven of your sins by what Christ did on the cross. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. And I want you to pray a very simple prayer to Him. It's not a prayer that saves you. It's not your hand in the air that saves you. It's Christ's redeeming blood on the cross that has saved you. And you just admit to Him that you are a sinner, that you've been Lord of your own life, and you want Him to be Lord of your life. You let Him know that you surrender, that you believe, that you trust. And then you just confess Him as Lord. And the Bible says that you are saved. For all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. And right now you surrender and you call in the name of the Lord. Your Father in heaven, Lord, I, I lift up to you every man, woman, and student in this place with their hand in the air saying that they surrender. God, we join with the angels in rejoicing because one of your kids has come home. Praise you, God. Praise you. And God, I also lift up to you the, the people that have been walking with you for a while. God, they know you as Father. But right now, God, they're in a ditch. Lord, whether it was their own decisions or it happened to them, it doesn't really matter. But Lord, may they experience your gospel and your grace this day too. May they be fully surrendered. May they feel your loving arms around them. God, may you pick them up this very day. May you, may you set their feet on your path. May you guide and direct it. And may you lovingly discipline them to maturity. God, for those that need to, uh, to take that first step of obedience into baptism, God, I pray that you call them to do that. God, for those of us that need to repent again today, God, I, I pray that you would call us to do that. And God, I thank you that as Christians, when we fall, we fall upon your grace. We fall upon your grace as purchased for us by the blood of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would be glorified no matter what, what part of the journey that we are in. That you would be glorified. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we are perfected. When these days are over, we stand face to face with not just our judge and king, our Father. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you please stand up? This is the, the point in our service where we respond. And this is, this is probably the most important part of the whole service. See, we don't ask God to do anything. We respond. We respond to our sovereign God that initiates a relationship with us. And so one of the ways we respond is we all sing together. We all worship Him by joining our voices together. One of the ways we respond is by bringing our tithes and offerings to the giving boxes around the room or the giving kiosk in the back or, or in the lobby. One of the big ways we respond is by coming to the altars and just kneeling down and talking to your Heavenly Father and just laying some stuff at His feet. So whatever it is, may we respond.